I'm here to be a catalyst for awe. You are a character in your life. So what kind of story are you telling? Is it any good? Or is it kind of boring? Let's put it to the test. This is Character Test with Joe Bunting. All right. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Character Test, my podcast about the characters we love and hate and the books we read, the films we watch, and the lives we lead. My name is Joe Bunting, and I'm a best-selling author. I'm the founder of The Right Practice. And I'm Alice Seppo. I'm a StoryGrid certified editor, and I love editing books and studying what makes a great story. So if you've never listened to this podcast before, here's how it works. We're going to start by putting a character to the test. Alice and I are going to look at a character in a book we're reading or a film we're watching and ask, is this actually a good character? And also, what can we learn from their story? Uh, which character are we talking about today, Alice? We're going to look at Alice Quinn from The Magicians by Lev Grossman. You, Joe, you and I have both read all three books, but I haven't seen the show. So at least from my perspective, I'll be thinking specifically about Alice from the books. I don't really like the show, so I'm also going to be thinking about Alice from the books. All right, there we go. <laughs> awesome. Well, I'm super excited to talk about Alice. Alice. After that, we're going to hear from Jason Redman. Jason is a retired Navy SEAL. He's a New York Times bestselling author, also a wounded warrior. If you don't know Jason's story, it's incredibly powerful. He was horrifically wounded in Iraq. He was shot eight times, once through the face blew off over a quarter of his face. Uh, he went on to survive and recover from that. His book, The Trident, was a New York Times bestseller. We, he talks about that experience and others that he had in the SEALs. He has a new book, Overcome, coming out in December. And we talk in the interview about resiliency, how to bounce back if you've been ambushed by life, and really what to do with your failures, even your character failures. Jason has lived an amazing story. He's living one now, so I'm really excited to talk to him. And then the last part of our show is our character study, where we ask, what can we learn in our own lives from our guests as we try to live a better story? One more thing before we get started. We have a free prize for everyone who listens to this episode. I'm not going to tell you what it is, so you have to find out for yourself. Uh, you can get it at charactertestshow.com slash episode two. Again, go to charactertestshow.com slash episode two, all one word, to get a free prize related to this episode. All right, so today we're talking about Alice from The Magicians. And just a spoiler warning, The Magicians trilogy came out a bunch of years ago. Now there's a TV series based on the books. But if you somehow haven't read or watched it and you don't want spoilers now, now is the time to skip ahead. Like right now, go ahead and skip ahead because we're going to be talking about it. Alice, what do you think? We're talking about Alice Quinn from The Magicians. Is she a good character? I mean, I'm going to start off and argue that I believe she is a good character. I think she's a really fascinating character in the series. Honestly, she was one of my favorites. Uh, I kind of got annoyed 
at a lot of the other characters. There's some whiny characters. Quentin gets kind of old to listen to. And Quentin is the protagonist of The Magicians. We're kind of following his story and Alice, his, his spoiler warning again, kind of love interest. And Quentin kind of flounders through a lot of his story, I would say. Alice really has some drive and focus, great problem-solving creativity, a lot of skill and knowledge. She just has a whole lot of strengths that she's working with, which makes her her a lot more enjoyable for me to read about anyway. I totally agree. So I think Alice is actually the best character in the whole series, and probably even Quentin would agree with that. I think he would. Yeah. I think she's really great. She's really world-weary. She's kind of sad. She's kind of frustrated with the world because she has really good reasons to be frustrated because she's really better than everyone else. Not that she holds it over everyone else's heads all the time, just every once in a while when they're being stupid. <laughs> right? She knows when to pull it out. <laughs> yeah. And I, and I really like how she evolves. I mean, I really like how she is in the first one and, and kind of the amazing sacrifice. I love stories about sacrifice and she kind of sacrifices herself for her group. And I think in books, in film, there's nothing more powerful in a story than sacrifice personally. But I also love how she evolves in the last novel of The Magicians because it's a three-part trilogy. Alice, can you remind us if you haven't read it or if you have, but you forget what happens in the last last book of the trilogy with Alice. I will, but just, I want to jump back for a second and say, I totally agree with you about the power of sacrifice, but I also remember when I was reading the books being so angry at that point because I was sitting there thinking, you just killed off the best character in this this book. This is the only person I wanted to keep reading about and now she's gone and I'm stuck with all this other cast that really just doesn't compare to Alice. I want her back. I understand that that makes her sacrifice even more powerful, but I'm stuck with this other rest of this cast, which is very annoying. But then in the last book, so I forget exactly the details of how this happens, but essentially Alice becomes, I believe it's a Nifflin, which is what happens when you overextend yourself and your magic and you're kind of transformed from a human being into something that's a little bit more like the essence of magic, losing all of the kind of soul that tethers you to humanity and uh, being more kind of this ball of power and energy and also a lot of anger and emotion. I don't know that necessarily Nifflins are purely anger, but certainly they're described as dangerous throughout the book. And that's what Alice becomes. And I think she's really contemptuous of humanity. It's not that she's just that she's angry. She sees herself as like so far above because she is. I mean, she's a magical being now. So she's above humanity. Yes. And Quentin has been grieving her loss since her sacrifice. So he decides to go out and save her, which the great thing about his efforts to save Alice is that she does not want to be saved. And she's pretty upset when he pulls her back into the regular human world and is trying to contain her, trying to transform her from a Nifflin back into a human being. She does not want to be saved. And so she, there's kind of this, this power struggle, this battle between them and the, the final book. This is fully spoilers right now. We're <laughs> really walking through all of the interesting them. climax parts. But, but there's this power struggle of, will Quentin be able to save her? And 
Is that a good thing if he does? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think the whole series explores all these themes about codependence and trauma. And Alice has been kind of through a codependent, I mean, a traumatic experience. And Quentin has previously been kind of codependent. And I love how, I don't know, that whole last book kind of shapes up and both of them are kind of healing and she's healing from her trauma and he's healing from, you know, his codependence and they kind of come together and it's not perfect. You know, a lot of stories are about really perfect characters who have it all figured out, especially by the end. And by the end, neither of them really have it figured out and they're all kind of okay, not completely okay, uh, but they're on the path to being okay. And I think it's really great. Um, so if you haven't read The Magicians and the whole trilogy is awesome, I would definitely recommend it and go Alice. Thanks for listening to The Character Test Show. We have a free prize for everyone who listens to this episode. I'm not going to tell you what it is though. So you have to find out for yourself. You can get it at charactertestshow.com slash episode one. Again, go to charactertestshow.com slash episode one to get a free prize related to this episode. All right. Hey, everyone. Jason Redman is here with me. Jason is the New York Times bestselling author of The Trident, The Forging and Reforging of a Navy SEAL Leader. His new book, Overcome, comes out in December and it's available for pre-order now. So, Jay, thanks for joining us today. Joe, awesome. Thanks for having me on. Hello, everyone. Yeah. So let's start at the beginning, if you don't mind, and you're obviously a retired Navy SEAL. How did you decide to join the SEAL teams? Because for you, it wasn't a sure thing, right? You were kind of a runty kid who saw an old video about SEALs and you just knew like, this is it. You were going to be a SEAL. Uh, But maybe you could tell me like when you went into the recruitment office and you said, hey, I'm going to be a SEAL, how did they treat you? Yeah, I mean, they basically laughed me out of the office. And I mean, you're, you're, you nailed it. I mean, I was a runty kid. You know, I was, uh, I was a proverbial 90-pound weakling, probably 15, 16. And that was about, the, I think I was 15 the first time I went into the recruiting office. Somewhere about 14, my dad, who was a military veteran, an army veteran, had told me about the SEAL teams. And I was always kind of enamored with the military and specifically our special operations. And when I heard about SEALs, I was like, that's what I want to do. So yeah, here I am, this 90-pound weakling struts into the uh, recruiting office and says, I want to be a SEAL. The recruiter basically laughed me out of the office. I mean, just chase me out, you know, beat it, don't waste our time. You know, you don't have what it takes to be a SEAL. And, And interestingly enough, instead of kind of crushing my dreams, it only lit a fire under me. It was like, okay, I'm going to prove you wrong. And I kept coming back and they kept giving me a lot of grief, but at least, I mean, every time they gave me grief, it just continued to drive me. I think both a blessing and a curse I've always had. And even to this day I have, if you tell me I can't do something, I want to, I just want to prove you wrong. As I get older, you know, I'm getting a little wiser and there are moments to implement that and moments to be smarter and just say, what wisdom does this person have 
you know, is there a smarter way to do this? But back then, I only knew my friend's joke. There was an easy way, the hard way, and then there was Jay Redmond's way. And Jay Redmond's way was to, I would, you know, by God, I was going to be a SEAL. <laughs> I love that. I mean, you have a long history of doing things despite people telling you you can't do it. And so, what advice do you have for people who are told, no, you can't do this. You're not going to make it. How do, how do you, you know, coach them to push through that? So now, you know, being a coach and a consultant, I, I tell people, you absolutely need that overcome mindset. You need that resiliency. We live a day in an age and, you know, I speak about this and overcome that I think written resiliency is waning. I think people automatically, if they encounter any adversity, their first thought is to quit. And it's just absolutely the wrong mindset. I will say where you can be smarter than me now and how I coach people is do your research. Do your research. If, if you are trying to do something that other people tell you is impossible, well, first off, who are they? What is their level of credibility to tell you it's impossible? Uh, maybe they're just naysayers and they really have absolutely zero experience in the arena where you want to go. So with that, I'd say toss that out and keep driving forward. Maybe they have a lot of credibility and you need to listen and say, okay, why do you believe that I don't have the ability to do this? And hopefully they'll let you know, well, I think this, 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 and this. And now it's on you to decide, okay, can I fix these things and can I overcome them? Or, you know, is there a valid point or do I need to take another path to get there? I think that's where people can be a lot smarter than I was because I didn't listen to anybody. I didn't care what their credibility was. They were merely someone that told me I couldn't do it. I probably could have had a less painful journey along the way if I had maybe done a little bit of research and, and heeded some of the advice that was out there. Yeah. And I think one thing you're saying that's really important is the people that you're getting advice from really matter. Uh, the mentors in your life or, you know, the naysayers who just want to bring you down. It's important to have really good people around you. And you've told me before that you're not really, you don't think of yourself as a leadership expert or a success expert. You think of yourself really as a failure expert, which I honestly love because I think if you're human, you've experienced failure and you need to figure out what do you do when you fail. But you had a pretty significant leadership failure early on in your career as a SEAL. Can you talk briefly about what happened? Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and really, I mean, just to clarify, it really wasn't a leadership failure or young as a SEAL. It was young as a SEAL officer because right. uh, I'd actually been in the SEAL teams for five, so 13 years, 12 years when I started sustaining some leadership failures. It was when I had moved from an enlisted leader to a young officer. I'd been commissioned just started making some mistakes. And instead of trying to fix myself, and really a lot of it had to do with not being willing to humble myself and ego got in the way. Two very dangerous things with anyone out there. Uh, the best leaders I've ever met were very humble leaders. They were servant leaders. Not to say, you know, there's a lot of leaders out there that don't have those qualities and they get the job done, but not everybody always wants to work for those people. For me, I was probably in the latter in my earlier years. I was uh, getting things done, but 
I wasn't building good relationships. And I also was definitely probably living by the old adage uh, at times of, hey, do as I say, not as I do. And all of that led to this perfect storm where I I had made some mistakes. I had made some bad calls and it kind of culminated with a, a bad call on a mission in Afghanistan in 2005 that probably would not have been as big of a deal if I had just owned it in the moment. My leadership pulled me aside and just said, that was a terrible call. You know, you could have potentially got yourself or other people killed. And instead of saying, you know what, you were right and analyzing and actually listening to it, you know, once again, uh, I think I probably saw it as a, hey, you're telling me I can't do something. So I fought back and said, you know what, you're wrong. I, you know, I did what was right. I ran to the sound of the guns. You know, I moved down to support teammates in need. This is a long story. So if you want to learn more, more about it, you really need to go read the Trident, my first book. But because it gets into some tactical mistakes right. I made. There's a lot of people that sometimes hear that story that don't understand tactics and say, well, I don't get it. You, you know, you risked your life to go down in the valley. Well, there's some truth to that. But also my motivation to do that was driven more by making myself look good than really the overall uh, success of the mission. And I placed another guy at extreme risk, my machine gunner, who I took down in the valley with me. So anyways, come in full circle. I fought back pretty hard. And my leadership and several of the people around me said, you know what, this guy's dangerous. He's going to make bad calls to get somebody killed. We should kick him out of the SEAL teams. And, uh, and I was faced with a pretty major failure point to where guys turned away from me and basically yeah. said, ah, we don't want to touch this guy. He's like a, a pariah. He's like cancer. Right. And uh, a really long, hard road where I finally had to come to grips and hit rock bottom and come to understand what it truly means to be a leader. And not only that, to dig yourself out of rock bottom yeah. failure and earn back people's trust and respect. So probably unequivocally the hardest road I've ever walked, but it gave me so much insight into leadership and what it is to effectively lead people and to build trust. And I think, you know, for people who aren't familiar with what it's like to be in combat, which is most of us, when you're in combat with people and you're going on missions, the people that you're surrounding with yourself with, they're really, you know, your life is in their hands. And if you don't have their trust, that's a big problem they run, those teams run, your teams run off trust, right? So what was it like for you when you felt like you were losing that trust? I remember this one moment in your book and you you go up to a fellow SEAL, someone you thought was a friend, someone you thought was someone you could count on and you just kind of opened up to him and said, I just don't know how I'm going to recover from this. And that conversation didn't go well. I mean, you realized, yeah, he really didn't trust you. How did it feel talking to him? Yeah, I mean, it was, uh, you know, nothing like being down and getting kicked while you're down. But I, but I got to give it to him. I want to say, and, and a lot of people don't understand the hard culture that exists in the warrior culture. I mean, you nailed it. There is no room to be soft because lives are on the line. Their lives uh, your teammates' lives. And no matter what, I don't care. You know, no, no one wants to unwillingly walk into their own death. 
so if you're relying on other people, you have to be brutally honest with them. If you don't feel like they measure up, if you don't feel like you can depend on them. And he was brutally honest with me. He said, Hey, you know, I've always questioned why you became a seal. Did you become a seal to totally serve your country and be a member of the best? Or did you become a seal because you wanted to look cool? That was a blow, you know, and it really made me take a step back because the reality was when I was younger, I probably lived my life sometimes, many times with this. I like being a SEAL because it's cool and not always the discipline and structure you always need to maintain the highest levels of, of readiness and the highest levels of trust and respect with your teammates. So what he told me was really good. And it, it was at least a seed he had planted. You know, I tell people that that journey from rock bottom to where I finally ended up executing the 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 final phase of that journey, which was going through U.S. Army Ranger School, that journey didn't happen overnight. Night. It was about a six month, well, about a five month process to kind of really come to grips with who I was, my my flaws, you know, my strengths, my weaknesses, and and how to uh, how to manage those. Yeah. So in Ranger School, they kind of gave you a lifeline, right? They said, you know we are going to send you to ranger school which is really a kind of one of the best leadership training programs in the military really in the world and you're there and you go through this compass course and it doesn't go well and you kind of had a, an emotional reaction and quit ranger school right and so take us into that moment i mean you're in the colonel's office you had just quit and you're talking over the next steps, which probably mean like you leaving the SEALs, maybe the military for good. What happened in that moment? Yeah, I mean, this is one of those moments that really, um, you know, depending on what you believe, you know, a God moment, you know, you can look at it as a fate moment. You can look at it as, uh, you know, I think out there, you know, those who look at luck call it serendipity. But um, I, I really, I let my emotions get the best of me, like, like you said, and I quit. The only thing I've really quit in any capacity uh, in my life at that level, you know, obviously, anyways. So going before the colonel, and once again, ego got in the way, ego is a dangerous thing because instead of acknowledging what I felt inside, which was I really screwed up, this was a big mistake, I stayed with it. And uh, continued to follow that. So uh, leading all the way up into the point where I sat down with that colonel and basically told him that, uh, you know, <laughs> I was done. He said, well, you know, would you like to talk to anybody within your community? And I was like, no. I mean, the last thing I wanted to do was talk to a fellow SEAL and tell him, you know, how I had failed at ranger school and then quit. I myself felt like a pariah. And he said, well, you know, there's a, uh, you know, I'm good friends with a respected leader. Maybe you want to talk to him. And he literally is dialing the phone as he's saying this and picks it up and eh, hello and, and hands me the phone and says, hey, it's Captain Vince Peterson, who Vince Peterson was probably one of the most respected SEALs in our community at the time. And he also happened to be uh, my commanding officer who had mentored me. He had been a mentor to me. He had gotten me commissioned. So when he handed me that phone, there was no way I could not take it. And Vince Peterson, 
in his incredible leadership capabilities, managed to very succinctly and quickly convince me. I mean, he basically gave me, here's option A, the option you're choosing, which is going to be a one-way ticket out of the military where you are no longer going to have any pay to take care of your family. And here's option B, which you're trying to convince yourself you can't take option B, which was, you know, basically redeeming myself and basically fixing these problems that I created for myself, picking myself up out of failure. And I told him, I don't know if I can do option B because I don't think the guys will ever follow me again because of the mistakes that I've made and the failures that I've had. And he gave me to this day, what I tell everyone is the best leadership advice I've ever heard. People will follow you if you give them a reason to. And he said, go back to that course, crush it, and then come back to the SEAL teams and continue to do the same thing, you know, lead. I think that was the point where I finally kind of broke through and realized, you know, all the problems that had happened, all the failures and all the hardship, it was me. I had done it. You know, I, I, the only person that made themselves a victim was me. And it came down to my ability to lead myself. And that's what I realized. And I, from that point forward, that became my focus on how I can lead myself uh, to the best of my ability which then gave me the opportunity to lead others. And that rule number three I follow is lead always. You know, you can't pick and choose anymore. Yeah. I mean, I want to talk about two things in that story because I think it's so crazy. First, the fact that this colonel who you were basically telling, I'm done with this, called, knew and called probably the one person in the world that you would have listened to in that moment, this mentor of yours who had kind of been with you your whole career really helped uh, kind of shape your path in the SEALs. That is so crazy. And, you know, sometimes you just got to get lucky like that. And then the second thing I want to point out is that, you know, in your book, you talk about how it really was this long process of rethinking, you know, you made this decision in that moment to start to lead yourself and, you know, crush Ranger School, go back to the teams and be a leader. Um, but you also had to really rethink. It didn't come automatically. You had to rethink a lot of your habits, a lot of your mindsets, and that took a long time. And I think it's it's interesting, like you can make these decisions, but kind of figuring out how to change your mind and change your process, the way you think about things can be really hard, right? And it takes time. It takes time to implement those things. And, you know, as humans, we're not perfect. There isn't anybody out there. I don't care who you are, you know, the John Maxwell of leadership. You know, he, I'm sure, has moments where he fails and he makes mistakes in leadership. We all do. I mean, it's the you know, it's, it's part of being human. But at the end of the day, when I tell people, it's never too late to get back on course. And as long as you know what your, what your course is, what your bearing is, hey, I'm going to be a leader. This is how I'm going to lead myself. This is how I'm going to put structure and discipline into my life. This is how I'm going to carry myself. Even if you get off course, you know that you pull your compass back out and you go, you know what, I'm off course right now. So let me course correct. So many people in life, they make these mistakes and they get off course and they never get back on course. And, and then they can't figure out why they're not successful or why they continue having all their problems. Well, it's aware there's an, they're aware there's an issue, but they're not doing anything to fix it. Yeah. Yeah. So you recovered from that. You went on to go back to the teams. You became a, a leader within your unit. And, you know, things were going pretty well. 
Uh, you were a task unit commander. Is that right? Uh, I was, uh, I was, uh, uh, a salt force commander and a mobility oh. force commander right. and, uh, an assistant platoon commander. Okay. So you were on an assignment on a mission going after a guy in Iraq and you were wounded. Can you tell us what happened in that mission? Like you said, I mean, I had come full circle, redeemed myself, earned back the trust and respect of the guys and really had my career back on track. Already, we were only a week from going home. So we were already, plans were in place for the next phases where everybody was going and what they were doing. I was to step up into the next level leadership position and even screening for a higher, higher level tactical leadership opportunity with another SEAL team. And we got word that a very specific individual, a high level, what we call a high value individual, was um, going to be in a specific time and location and someone we'd been hunting all deployment. And we launched on that mission. And unfortunately, my team and I that went in after him walked into a very well executed ambush. And uh, both myself and two of my teammates were shot up. I was hit uh, at least eight times that we know of between my body armor and body, two rounds in my left elbow, which effectively destroyed my left elbow. And then I, I took a round of the face, uh, which did significant damage, took, my, um, took most of my nose off. It obliterated my right cheekbone. It vaporized my orbital floor. It broke all the bones above my eye, uh, shattered my jaw and, you know, <laughs> knocked me out leaving me pinned down in this pretty vicious firefight that was literally happening about eight inches above me as I lay flat on my back unconscious. Thankfully, you know, my teammates did an amazing job of fighting. We had an Air Force AC-130 gunship up overhead, which we ended up calling in. My, my team leader called in a fire mission where a uh, fire mission, for those that understand the military, this is where we take munitions from aircraft overhead and bring them down to the ground to support ground troops. So we conducted the closest fire mission in the entire Iraq war. We literally called those rounds directly on ourselves and, and miraculously survived. And my team leader moved forward under fire and managed to get me uh, back to the only point of cover we had, a kind of a large... Uh, John Deere tractor tire and got a tourniquet on my arm and saved my life. There's no doubt about it. And really, in my opinion, saved all our team's lives that night. He did a phenomenal job. But uh, that started a whole new journey. Obviously, here I was, you know, I had been at rock bottom. I had come back up to the top and and suddenly I got knocked down again. But the interesting thing is that is I didn't necessarily see it as oh my God, I've been knocked down again. I saw it as, I don't know, just another obstacle. And I'll be honest, that journey, everybody assumes that, you know, me being grievously injured was probably the worst thing I've ever been through. And, and it wasn't. The leadership failure and being ostracized for a period of time from my community was definitely the hardest thing I ever went through. And to earn back that trust and climb out of that hole. So when I was wounded, I was just kind of like, okay, this sucks. But uh, you can overcome this. You know, you will drive forward. They will figure out how to put you back together and whatever end state there is, you're going to make the most of it. That didn't happen overnight, but, you know, pretty quickly I ramped up to that mindset. This episode is brought to you by The Right Practice Pro. 
The Write Practice Pro is an amazing community of creative writers where you can post your writing, get feedback on it, and figure out how to turn your writing into beautiful, award-winning books, short stories, or novels. I personally post my own writing to this community to get feedback. And if you have any interest in becoming a published, award-winning writer, you should too. The Write Practice Pro is for anyone writing a book, novel, short story, or poem, or anyone who just wants to improve their creative writing. If you want to become a better writer, getting good feedback is something you must invest in. And the Right Practice Pro is the best place to get it. You can sign up for the Right Practice Pro at therightpractice.com slash join. So you had just been wounded really horribly and you got medevaced. Eventually you made it back to the States. You were in Bethesda Naval Hospital and you had some visitors, right? And you know, you've talked about in your book how they kind of looked at you with pity. They're like, oh my God, look at what he's gone through. What a poor guy. In the in the midst of this, you're kind of in and out of consciousness because you are on a lot of drugs. But what was your response to those visitors who kind of looked at you with pity? I talked to a lot of people about this in life that oftentimes when we go through hard times, people will look at you like a victim. And, and it's a natural tendency for ourselves to look at ourselves as a victim, but you have a choice. You have a choice when bad things happen. You can either be the victor and drive forward and overcome them and not feel sorry for yourself and sit on the X as I talk about and overcome the X being the point of attack or the point of when something bad happens, or you can be the victim. And you can listen to what people say and listen to your, you know, those little voices inside your head that tell you, you know, oh my God, this is so terrible and I'm never going to get past this. And you just sit there on the X and wither. I made the choice that I wasn't going to be a victim. I wasn't, if, if I refused to feel sorry for myself, so I wasn't going to let anybody else feel sorry for me. So in that moment, I wrote out this sign. And, and the sign said, attention to all who enter here. If you're coming in this room with sadness or sorrow, don't bother. The wounds that I received, I got in a job that I love, doing it for people that I love, defending the freedom of a country I deeply love. I'll make full recovery. What is full? That is the absolute utmost physically. I have the ability to recover. And then I'll push that about 20% further through sheer mental tenacity. This room you're about to enter is a room of fun, optimism, and intense rapid regrowth. If you are not prepared for that, go elsewhere. And, you know, my wife was with me and we signed it, the management. <laughs> and I told her, put this on the door and nobody's allowed in my room until they read this. And, you know, the sign took on a life of its own. But what it, what it really captures is, in my opinion, the third rule of leadership. So, you know, number one, we lead ourselves. Number two, we lead others. And number three, you lead always. And leading always means you still have to lead even when bad things happen. You still have to lead when adversity happens. You still have to lead when massive failure and pain happens. And it is a choice to do that. And I chose in that moment to write out this sign, to write out this mantra, to motivate myself, and as well as unintentionally, really, uh, motivating so many other people out there. Because that sign went on to probably motivate millions of people at this point, from wounded yeah. warriors to people with cancer to people that have been through accidents to heads of state, 
you know, such a, you know, or, or political leaders such as, you know, uh, Secretary of Defense, Robert Gates and First Lady Michelle Obama. I mean, all these things, they saw the sign and were incredibly motivated. So yeah. you never know the outcome of choosing to be a victor over a victim and the, the, the people that you will impact by choosing that, that, that rule number three to lead always. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, that sign went on to go viral, right? It was picked up uh, across social media and then led to a lot of appearances on news media. And you, you got to meet President Bush at the time. And from that, you kind of wrote this book, The Trident, uh, which went on to become a New York Times bestseller. And you were touring around the country speaking about this idea. And you came across a young man uh, who you describe in your new book, Overcome, as being stuck on the X. Can you describe your conversation with him and what you kind of realized? Yeah, so he was, a, uh, he was an individual that had been in combat. He was a medic. He was in a convoy, and his convoy, well, let me back up. He had been home from war for almost 10 years, and uh, he had just stopped living. He had stopped going out into society, really. He just stayed home the vast majority of the time and just kind of a shell of the person he used to be. And for several years, I ran an organization helping wounded warriors, and he ended up coming through one of our programs through a lot of pushing from other individuals to encourage him to go through this program. And one of the things that they had to do in the program, something I encourage anyone who's been through trauma is you have to talk about what happened. If you box it up, it is like a dragon and the dragon will eventually break out of that cage or break out of that box and eat you. So one of the things the wounded warriors had to do in this course is they had to tell their story of what happened. And he got up and told his story and he was in that convoy, the vehicle in front of him blew up and he ended up getting out of his vehicle and moving up to this large armored vehicle. And uh, the size of the blast was so big and the blast wave was so big, it actually twisted the frame of the vehicle and uh, he couldn't get the door open. And the young individual inside was trying to get the door open. The driver inside the vehicle was also trying to get the door open and the inside of the vehicle was on fire. And the medic watched this young driver burn to death uh, right there before his eyes, you know, through this, you know, glass, uh, the, uh, you know, the, the armored glass. And he carried that trauma with him. He came home and he just shut down. And when he told his story and I thought about, man, for 10 years, you have stopped living. It like hit me in the face. I had been trained my whole life about ambushing people and how we fight our way out of ambushes. And we always call the point of attack the X. And I was always trained that in order to survive any ambush or attack, you have to get off the X as quickly as possible. And in that moment, I realized, holy smokes, this guy, I was like, you've chained yourself to the X. Like you never left the ambush you were in in Iraq. You're still there. And in that moment, I realized, holy smokes, there's so many people I've met in life that have had bad things happen. And they do the exact same thing. They end up just laying down on the X and never being able to move forward. They get stuck in that bad incident, that failure point, that major crisis or adversity, and they just don't have the ability to move forward. All they do is focus on what they lost or they focus on that trauma and they don't look at how do I move out of this? 
And that's really what this whole book is about. It is about how we help people move off that X as quickly as possible. And that timeline varies depending on the severity of the trauma you've been through. Obviously, someone who loses a child, it's going to take longer to get off the X than maybe someone who was in a relationship breakup. But no matter what, you know, that point of incident, so many people get stuck on it. So that's why my motto now has become, you got to get off the X. Hmm. Wow. What do you say to people? How do you coach people who are in the middle of a crisis? Maybe they've experienced trauma or they're just having a hard time moving forward in life. How do you coach people uh, to recover and push forward to get off the X? You know, I think the biggest thing is one, they've got to figure out, they've got to accept that they are in a crisis, failure, or adversity, because the reality is some people get comfortable on the X. You know, unfortunately, like that young man, and I've seen a lot of people that get comfortable in that point of attack. I got comfortable in the victim mentality when I failed as a young leader. I mean, it took me, you know, it took me almost five months to get off the X and finally figure out that I was the cause of my problems. I was blaming everybody else. And so that's the first thing in the book, you know, we developed this uh, react methodology and, and what it, what it is, is the very first thing that has to happen is people have to recognize they're in a crisis. They are in uh, that they're stuck, that they're on the X because oftentimes people are in denial. They're in denial about what's happened to them. They're in denial. You know, they, oh, no, I'm actually okay. <laughs> no, you're not. You know, you're, you're not moving forward. You're struggling with life. You're self-medicating. So that's probably the first thing. The second one is to evaluate what are their options? What do they have around you, around them that they can utilize to start to move? The third one is to assess those different assets that are around them and basically figure out, start to look at what is the best options? What's the best options? And then to look at what is the outcome of that option and deciding, okay, this is where we need to go. C is choose and communicate. We tell them you, you've got to choose something. So many people, a lot of people tend to analyze, hey, I'm going through a crisis. So, and they might even recognize they don't want to own it. So they may evaluate and they may assess, but they're not willing to actually choose. And they're definitely not going to communicate it to anybody else because now they're having to come back to R, recognize, and they're admitting that, hey, Houston, we got a problem. And then number two, uh, T, the fifth one is you actually have to take action. So a lot of people I'm working with now, this is, we walk them through that. Once we do that, once we can get them off the X, then it starts to fall into how do we live our life? How do we set that new course and some of that comes down to your values and purpose. Oftentimes, what happens in a major crisis or failure in life, people can be reborn if they're willing. You know, it can become one of the best things that ever happened to them. I'll be, I'll be honest, if my, if my leadership failure and my injury had never happened, I wouldn't be where I was today. I wouldn't be able to sit here on this podcast and talk with credibility about all the things that I've been through. So it was an incredibly hard journey, but I learned some amazing lessons and I'm able to help other people out. So that's kind of the next step. So the first step is make them understand you are in a crisis and the only way you're going to get out of it is to get off the X. So here's the steps to do it. And now let's reevaluate. Let's reevaluate because usually a life ambush, a major crisis, life will never be exactly the same again. So you might 
be able to go back to do some of the things you did before, but sometimes not because life has been fundamentally changed. So it may lead us to a new purpose and a new direction. And believe it or not, oftentimes out of that new purpose and direction becomes something that's even better than what you had before. Yeah, I love that. I think one of the things I'm thinking a lot as I do this podcast is that good stories, the stories that we love in film and in the novels we read in the nonfiction books, we read in your story too, um, because you have an amazing story. Good stories are about good characters in the middle of crisis who have endured crisis, who have endured trauma and who make decisions and take action in the midst of that trauma. And they kind of show us the way that we can do that in our own lives. And I think you're a model of someone who has made decision and taken action in the middle of a lot of crisis. So thank you for sharing your story, Jay. This was so amazing. No, Joe, thank you, man, for having me on. I think this is, uh, I love the idea behind this, you know, characters and how they live their lives. I mean, you know, taking that transition from both the fiction to the nonfiction and how that blends. Cool. Last question. What is one of your favorite characters in a book or a movie? And tell us what you like about them. I, I'll tell you what, my, one of my top favorite, so I have two favorite movies out there. You ready? The yeah. Matrix okay. and, and The Last Samurai. Uh, But I'm going to use The Matrix for this example. I love that movie because it it really is a very awesome journey into someone who didn't realize who they were. They always kind of questioned it. You know, Neo, Keanu Reeves' character always felt like there was something more out there and he felt drawn to it and he searched for it like so many people while he continued to live this mundane existence until finally... He gets thrust into this world, this whole new world, the Matrix, uh, getting outside of the Matrix and this coming of age and having to believe in himself, which so many of us, I mean, I think that's one of the biggest things that people struggle with is coming to, to believe in the power of who they are. I love the scene where they're coming in on the helicopter at the end of the movie and the helicopter gets ready to crash. They've saved Morpheus. And Neo like falls off onto the roof and the helicopter's getting ready to crash with Trinity and he wraps his arm around the cable and Morpheus like he's beginning to believe, <laughs> and, you know, he catches the helicopter and swings it into the building. You know, I mean, the, the impossible, but it was just such a great moment. And I love uh, stories like that. I am a huge fan of superhero stories. I just, I love the whole idea. And it, it's kind of neat that for a, a tiny you know, speck of time, I got to participate a little bit in a, in a superhero culture with, you know, amazing men who really, you know, some of the best our nation has to produce. Yeah. And I was honored to be with them. And, and so movies for me, I love seeing things like that. And The Matrix is a great one. That was a good choice. I've probably seen The Matrix 80 times. I watched it like almost every day when I was a teenager for a while. That's awesome. Good choice. Yeah, thanks. And he had, I mean, one of the things that's good about that is he had a mentor character. Is Here's the question. Is Vince Peterson your Morpheus? You know, mentors, yes, in some ways he, he was. I mean, I still to this day go back to look at the lessons that Vince Peterson taught me. I think mentors come in the, the individuals who 
physically that you have a relationship and mentor you. And then there are the mentors that you learn from, some who are no longer here. An individual, you know, if you were to ask me, who's my favorite person from history and who do I look to for, for guidance? I mean, you know, George Washington is just an incredible example. And I love, I mean, you look at the winter at Valley Forge with George Washington. I and mean, if you go back and study history, even his own friends were starting to question the war and starting to question this revolution. And if we had the ability to succeed and even questioning his leadership, his own yeah. friends, and he had the conviction to stay the course when all he wanted to do was go back to Mount Vernon. And here he is. He's got people that are deserting. I mean, he's got mutiny problems. I mean, he doesn't have enough clothes for his army. He has guys that are freezing to death. And I think that's such a tribute to mm-hmm. leadership. So I look back on what he did and I just say, okay, if that guy can do that, then I can do whatever this, you know, little leadership hurdle that I have. You know, and then like I said, we evolved. My my boss when I was in Iraq. After I came back from, you know, my leadership failures and mistakes, I mean, he was a phenomenal mentor to me and still a friend to this day. And now I have a new business mentor. He's gone down the path of where I want to go. And he's just been fantastic. And it's kind of been a, it's kind of been a neat, fun relationship because he has gotten a lot of mentorship really from a lot of the SEAL books are out there. And he's applied some of these books, including my book which is pretty phenomenal. But now, you know, we're, we're becoming friends and I'm learning from him. And so it's been great. So mentors will evolve as our life evolves and as our course evolves. But, you know, you're always able to go back and look at the old ones for guidance. Yeah, I love that. It's important to have good mentors. Amen. Cool. Well, thank you so much, Jay. This has been awesome. Really appreciate your time. And Overcome comes out in December. And I think you can pre-order it now, right? Yep. Go on to Amazon. You can pre-order it. So we're, uh, we're ramping things up. Great. All right. Well, thank you so much, Jay. And we'll talk to you soon. All right, Joe. Thanks, man. All right. Let's get right into the character study section of the show. This is when we discuss what lessons we can apply from the interview to our own stories. So, Alice, what are one or two things that you took away from Jason's story? So, one thing that I found really impactful and bold was the fact that he talked primarily about his failures over the course of his story, which I think is something that we're going to get a lot of in the course of this podcast. Because when we're looking at choices that people make, that really comes around failures more than successes. And the successes that he described were born out of his failures. Like they were only really successes in the wake of these failures, and they wouldn't have been around otherwise. I just thought that was a really bold and vulnerable thing. Yeah, I think that's such a good point. I love the fact that he calls himself a failure expert. And one of the things I was thinking about as I was reading his book, which feels very different than a lot of other military memoirs, um, and this is his book, The Trident, uh, is that it's very vulnerable. Like, I was really surprised at the level of vulnerability he went to and how much he talked about the things he did right, but also about the things he did wrong. I feel like that's pretty rare, Uh, but it's also really helpful. I mean, I feel like we learn best through failure and it's amazing to hear about someone else's failures so that we can grow from that. 
So just his, like you said, courage and vulnerability really was helpful for me as I think about how to tell my own story. Yeah, for sure. And then the other piece that I really found really interesting listening to his story was he introduced himself at the beginning early on with this kind of description of someone who's really determined to go after what they want, what they want to achieve, and who's very set on uh, pursuing goals regardless of what kind of opposition they face or when people don't believe in them or tell them they can't do it. He talked about getting laughed out of the room when he first announced that he wanted to be a SEAL. And I noticed how kind of throughout that story, he maintained that same determination, but he kind of had to navigate through the ways that that served him well and the ways that it actually hindered him at times. Uh, It served him well in giving him the strength and just unwillingness to change his mind when there was something that he wanted to pursue, which allowed him to achieve things that would feel almost impossible for a lot of people, I think. And at the same time, it made it very difficult, it sounds like, for him to accept valid critique about some of the things that he was thinking about or doing. And that was something that he had to kind of learn and and adjust throughout his life, this ability to both pursue something and welcome critique from the sources that offer really valuable critique. Yeah, that's a really good point. And one of the things that I've learned from Jason as I've gotten to know him is how much the SEALs and a lot of special operations value feedback. And before and after missions and during training, uh, feedback is like constantly coming at you from every level, from the operators, from your officers, like it's a very flat culture. And I think that was challenging for him as a younger person. And it became, you know, part of his core values too, um, to take that feedback and apply it and get better from it. But, you know, as people, especially, you know, really high performing people, like I think he is, sometimes, you know, there's a lot of ego in there and uh, it's always difficult to, you know, push down your ego, take the feedback Uh, and then grow from it. And that's something I think we can all focus on and all work on taking feedback from other sources. Yeah. And I think that's something that I am taking from this interview and applying to my own life. Yeah. I really liked when he talked about how ego is rough. Ego is the enemy. Ego will hold you back in all the spaces. And I agree. I think that it's it's a skill to learn how to receive feedback and to receive it well and to be willing to adjust the things that you're doing, the things, even the ways that you're thinking. It's hard. It takes time. And it was really powerful to hear how he walked through that adjustment and the the kind of almost joy, I would say, that it brings him at the end to be able to look back and see all of the the beautiful things that have come out of that process. All right, everyone, it's time to put it to action. So this week, I want you to ask someone for feedback. Ask someone for feedback, someone that you know, someone that you're friends with, in relationship with, your spouse, uh, your boss, ask for feedback, and then try to apply that feedback and let us know how it goes. You can email us at charactershow at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks and have a good week.